Matthew 1. Um, we're just going to be there briefly, but I want you to see it nonetheless. If you want, you can go ahead and flip over to Genesis 3, or yeah, Genesis 12, actually, 12, 3, and you can hold your finger there too, but I want you to see Matthew. That's really where our, our, our text comes from, but it's, it's very brief, and it's going to require us uh, kind of walking back through. And so Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, is where we're going to draw our, our text and sort of jump back into um, the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis 12 is where we'll start. So turn there with me. Um, as we're doing that, man, this again, it's the season of Advent, and, and we, we, are, we try to be as intentional as we can here at the journey about Christmas Eve and Christmas Day um, and the gatherings, because, man, like, if we do nothing to be intentional about worshiping Jesus, like, in this season, the culture has plenty of other stuff for us to do, right? There, there's, there's family gatherings to plan, there's gifts to buy, there's uh, all that stuff to think about, food to prepare for. All, all of that. And so we need to be intentional. And God has always been intentional about placing rhythms and festivals and routines in the life of his people so that they would do one primary thing, and that is remember. Remember what God has done. And, 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 and so that remembering what God has done anchors us as we look ahead and as we try to make it through this life of chaos and loss and confusion, it anchors us. Remembering what he has done anchors us in order that we may have hope in what he has promised to do still. And so the season of Advent is really one of, of waiting. Advent means the coming, right? And, and Jesus has come. Amen. That is, that is our gospel hope. Everybody knows this, the verse of John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's what we're celebrating, that Jesus has come. But we're in the, we're in the middle. We're in between the, the Advents because he has come and he's promised that he will come again. And so as we celebrate that he has come, it anchors us and helps us to wait and to live with hope as we await his coming again. And there is so much to that. We, we could say that quickly, that he has come, that he has fulfilled his promises. But man, the Bible is just rich with layers and, and, and layers and layers and, and just thread throughout history of this promise for him to come. And we looked last week at, um, Gen or at Matthew 1, um, where we looked at Jesus' crazy family tree, right, where we just walked through this series of people that have broken stories, but God had made a promise, and he used these people, broken as they may be, to accomplish his promises. And so um, today we're going we're gonna to kind of work backwards because there is an intentionality to Matthew's explanation. The way that he starts his gospel as he writes the book of Matthew is intentional. He, he wants uh, th these people to know that this, this, uh, this Jesus, who in this moment is, you know, 40-ish probably years removed uh, from, you know, as far as ascension, this, this Jesus who is turning the world upside down, followers are growing, churches are being planted. This was not a novel idea. Jesus didn't just appear as a, as a new um, influencer that came on the scene and now everybody's, you know, kind of, you know, following him in a fad. No, no, this is the promised one that dates all the way back to the beginning. So the book of Genesis is indeed, means the beginning, right? And, and so all the way back to Genesis 3, when things fell apart, and sin entered the world in that moment as God is, is explaining to his children the discipline that's coming, the punishment that is coming. If you're a parent, you know these, these seasons, right? You're kneeling down with your kiddos. Okay, because you did this, we now have to go into this. We have to, we have to enter this season of this. We have to do this, right? Jesus, as God is doing that in Genesis 3, 
He's saying, okay, things are never going to be the same. You have to leave the garden. You won't live forever now. We, we are separated. As he's walking through all that, he also seeds hope. But he says it won't always be this way. As he's speaking to the serpent, he says, okay, and you, you need to know that I'll make this right. And so in Genesis 3, he speaks and says, there will be the seed of a woman that comes and crushes your head even as you bruise his heel. Uh, it, um, Theologians call that the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first mention of the, the gospel, of the good news. It's the first preaching that, that what has been broken by our sin will be made right by our God. And if you're here today wondering what Christianity is about, it is, it is that. It is not you here, okay, maybe I can get some, some uh, tips to, to live my life a little bit better, and then I'll, I'll get this thing figured out. It's not, okay, what can I do to save myself so that I won't go to hell? It's, what can, it's not, what, I, what can I do to get myself out of this mess? No, no, the, the gospel is called good news because it is the best news, because it is what God will do. In that moment, Genesis 3, he says, I will do something to reverse this. And so the, the big theme of the Bible, it can be traced all the way, all the way throughout that God is promising to reverse this curse, that, that we sing joy to the world, right? And we talk about as far as the curse is found. I love that line. It's this, this richness of, yes, the curse is found all over, and you see it, you know it, some of you are feeling it more acutely this week than ever, even in this moment, and yet Jesus is coming to reverse that as far as it's found not just here, not just in Israel, not just in the United States, like all over, and God intends to do that. And so we'll look at even more next week at, the, at uh, the, the land piece of this promise when we talk about David. But so that, that, that is why Matthew starts his gospel the way that he does with a genealogy, okay? And we said last week genealogies can be cumbersome to read because there are a lot of names that we, you know, often names that we don't use anymore. And if you're not looking at it from a big picture, they can even be boring to read. Like, what, what is the point here? But genealogies are kept throughout the scripture. It's, it's one of the things that sets the Bible apart as an actual, like, historical book. This is not mythology. This is not somebody sitting and going, how can I explain how we got here? And so they make up some characters. No, no, this is a tracing back from the beginning, and so genealogies are very important throughout the scripture, and so that's why Matthew starts his book this way, is he wants to be clear that this Jesus that has arrived is the culmination and the fulfillment of all that God has been doing in his people throughout history, all the promises that God has made. It's not that he's forgotten about those and wadded those up, thrown those away, and doing something new in Jesus. Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment of all those promises, and so as Matthew starts, Matthew 1.1, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he says something very peculiar. Before he gets into the actual genealogy, he, he gives sort of these labels to Jesus, these titles, if you will. And these would have had significant meaning to the Jewish readers, which is who Matthew was targeting his gospel at. He was writing for the Jews. These people that had been awaiting this Messiah, Matthew is writing to convince them, to make it clear to them that this Jesus is the Messiah that they have waited on. And so he gives these titles. He says, this is the genealogy of this Jesus Son of David, son of Abraham. Okay, so we're going to look at David next week. We're sort of working our way backwards. So today we want to look at Abraham. That title, the son of Abraham, has significance um, that, that is really hard to overstate for the people that would have read this in this culture, in this moment of Jewish history. To, to, to make the claim that this Jesus is indeed the promised one that dates all the way back to Abraham is hugely significant for these people who have been awaiting a savior. So uh, as we said, 
genealogies are huge. So if we flip back to Genesis 12, you can kind of hold there if you would. And uh, Genesis is the fir- first book in your Bible. If you'll find that 12th chapter, you'll see the first mention of Abraham. His name there is going to be Abram. But, but I want to I walk us just real briefly into how we got there. Because I mentioned Genesis 3. And from that moment, Genesis 3, when God, when, when the, the sin is entered the world, right? The Adam and Eve, our first parents, um, fell in the garden. They, they, they did not do what God told them, or they actually did what, exactly what God told them not to do. Sin into the world, fracture, fractured what God had made to be good, very good. Things start to go broken. He makes the promise, from the seed of a woman, I will send someone to crush the head of this enemy. And from that moment on, you start to see, in Genesis 5, you, st- you see um, there is another genealogy. So, from, from, so we see that Adam and Eve, they, they start to have kids. Cain and Abel are the first. We have a story about Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And then Genesis 5 picks right back up in a genealogy, tracing this from here. So you kind of have this big picture of history. It's going to cover thousands of years in, in just a few verses. But then, occasion, then, then we'll zoom in. And then it'll zoom back out with some genealogies. And it'll zoom in on some people's lives. So in Genesis 5, we have uh, going from Adam to Noah, okay? So it's going to track from Adam and, and Cain and Abel, the story that happens there. It's going to go, okay, then these guys had deep, all the way down, Genesis 5, going to track them all the way to Noah. And then in Noah, we see that we're going to zoom in again for a moment, and we're going to see that in those generations, things got so incredibly wicked, so incredibly corrupt, that God decided he needed to destroy the whole world and start over with Noah's family. That's the story of the flood. We see that accounted in Genesis 6 through 10, the story of the flood, Noah's family surviving, and then the Lord starting over with Noah's family and the nations being born again and spread out through or from Noah's family, expanding into the world. And then in, verse, in chapter 11, we have more genealogy, tracing from Noah all the way down to this man named Abram. But right before that, if you, if you, if you miss it, it's, it's actually it's a well-known story in the Bible, but it's just a few verses. It's just nine verses in Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. So as the, the, the nations are born through Noah's descendants, as the society starts over and we get generations out, there's a story of the Tower of Babel where the people decide that they're going to they're gonna milk, they're, they're, gonna, they're looking at this life, they're looking at the, the world, and they're going, okay, there's something missing in me. A lot of you are here today because of that. A lot of you have been brought to church because you realize there's something missing in me. There's a longing in me that, that nothing's quite, I got married, or maybe, maybe you haven't, maybe, you know, I, I got this, I got what the world promised me would make me happy. I, it still isn't fulfilling me, right? They're feeling that. They're driven by that. And so they decide, these people, this group of people decide that they're going to try to squeeze from the resources of this life satisfaction and fulfillment and glory and identity out of this world. So they decide they're going to build this tower. And and there's a very specific purpose. It says in Genesis 11, it says um, that we may make a name for ourselves. Genesis 11:4 that we may make a name for ourselves unless we be scattered all over the whole earth. So they are they are aiming to get this identity. How do we get glory? How do we get an anchor? How do we feel like this world this this life is worth living? They decide they're going to build this tower. They will make a name for themselves. They will stand out among the rest of the nations of the world and out of this they will get life. And then God comes down and thwarts that plan. 
scatters them like he intended to do in the first place. They, their languages are mixed up and they scatter them all over the face of the earth. That was God's plan from the beginning. He's going to get glory, not from one particular location, but all over. But he scatters them and then it's interesting. As they're scattered and as then we go back into a genealogy that goes from, or that, that traces again from Noah down to Abram, we're going to zoom back in on this man named Abram. And here the story gets really personal and it gets really um, specific uh, as it starts with Abram and it really is continuing even today. Even today, the story of what God is doing in Abram is affecting you and I today. And that's, that's so as Matthew starts his gospel and says, hey, this Jesus, this is the son of Abraham. There's implications, not just for the Jewish readers of that day, but for us today, that the promise that God makes to Abraham, to Abram, and the movement that he starts in this moment of the story is something that actually, if we will lean into it, in this season of Christmas and materialism, and you know, I mean, there's really not more of a powerful season for covetousness and jealousy, and even, and, and to go along with that, often depression, anxiety, right? We're, we're tempted to spend more money than we should. We're tempted to do more than we should. We're, we're, we're tempted to act like we're doing better than we are. We're, we're tempted to just put up with, like it's, there's a lot going on, right? And if we will grasp, if we will lean into and settle in and grasp what, what the Lord promised to Abraham and claim it for our own and set and rest in it, it has the power to diffuse all of that covetousness, all of that jealousy, all of that angst, all of that depression, all of that tension. Because what the Lord is promising to Abram is more precious than any bit of materialism, any bit of, of gifts, anything that we could ever long for. It, it, he's actually getting right to the heart of what we as humans do long for. And so this is hugely important for us. So let's, let's lean in here, and we're just going to quickly move through this story um, that we zoom in on, right? So we got some genealogies. There's going to be more later, but it's going to spend a lot of time now from Abram turning to Abraham and his family and beyond is going to get zoomed in here for a long season. And it really, as I said, is continuing even today. So in Genesis 12, we see the Lord shows up to this man at this point is named Abram. And he says to him in verse one, go from your country and, and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. So here's the, here's the promise. It says, hey, you leave where you're at. We, we read that just a few sentences. He, he's coming to him and say, hey, I know you're settled. I know you got this life. I want you to pack it up and leave it. I want you to go where I tell you. Okay, so there's faith already being asked of from Abram. Um, go where I tell you and I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you in verse three and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him and, and Lot went with him, his nephew. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his, Sarah, his wife and Lot, his brother's son and all their possessions and all that they had gathered and the people that they acquired in Haran. And they set out to the land of Canaan where, and when they had come to Canaan, Abram passed through that land and there were Canaanites in the land and the Lord launches into the story. And what we see, okay, 75 in that moment, the Lord sends him out, makes this promise 
and then it's going to walk through uh, this credible story of them passing through Egypt, and in that moment we get this this foretelling, this prophecy, this prophecy of what's, what's going to happen generations later as his people are in Egypt, and, and Moses has to go get them out as they pass through. Abraham is not perfect man, right? He's working, like, he is, he is Father Abraham, but he has his issues, and he quickly um, shows his, his character whenever he cowards uh, under the power and the fear of Pharaoh and, and knows, okay, if they see my wife, she's attractive, they're going to want to take her, so they're going to kill me so they can have her. So he says, hey, honey, um, I'm going to need you to pretend to be my sister so they don't kill me. And the implication behind that, if you, if you go ahead and carry that out, what he's saying is, I'm going to need you to go ahead and pretend to be my sister. That way they can take you and do what they want with you, and we both live. But in reality, he's going to let her be used by them so that he can save his own skin. So yes, he believed the Lord, and he walked in, in faith, and that was counted to him as righteousness, but he is still a, a man of flaws and struggles. And so um, through that... Uh, Pharaoh does exactly that. He takes Sarai in, and he is going to, you know, do what he desires to do, but the Lord stops it by bringing plagues upon Egypt. It's crazy, because we know about the plagues that are going to come later. He brings plagues upon Egypt, and Pharaoh, and Pharaoh realizes, oh, this is because of this man. He says, hey, why'd you do that? He sends her on her way, and he, and he gets them out, and they move on. And so we, we, all of that is foretelling. All of this, from, from really from Genesis 3 on, we get a heavy emphasis, is all going to move us toward Jesus. It's going to move us toward Jesus. All of the Old Testament is moving us in the direction, and, and, and it all terminates and culminates on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so even that is foretelling of the Lord's rescue from Egypt in the midst of broken people. And then we have in 12 and 13, there's more narrative. There's, 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 there's a lot to unpack there. We won't get into that. I want to skip over to chapter 15 now. I want to see uh, the Lord has made his promise to Abraham, and as he goes on in these stories, it's going to, he's going to get clearer and clearer. The, the tension's going to grow, because in the midst of there, years have gone by, and Abraham and Sarah have still not had a child, and they're getting older and older and older and older and older, and the clock is ticking, and their hope is fading, and yet the Lord, his promise has not changed. In fact, he's going to begin to clarify and add to it as this narrative goes on. So chapter 15, um, the Lord comes to Abram and says, in a vision, he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh Lord, what, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So he's got a, he said, Lord, I know I believed you, but like, what's this plan? Because I still don't have a kid. This, this servant who's grown up in my home is going to inherit my estate. Yes, you've been generous, generous to me. You've blessed me with all this, but I've got nobody to pass it on to. We have a hard time connecting those dots, right? Our, our, our uh, livelihood, our legacy is not as tied to um, the, the, the birth of a son in particular as it would be for them. But Abram's saying, listen, I, I, I know you've said this, Lord, but I'm not seeing it. And, and frankly, it's getting less and less likely, and so I'm not sure. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever struggled in those moments of like, okay, Lord, I know you promised, but I don't see it. Anybody? I'm not seeing it. I know you promised to take care of us, but right now we're not sure how we're going to pay the bills. Anybody? I know you promised to fulfill, but I'm not sure, you know, I, I know you, you promised to, to be faithful in this moment. I know you promised to bless us with this, but I'm not sure. Abram and then Sarah are feeling that tension. Years have gone by, and you see that right there. He says, Lord, there's frustration. He says, this guy lives in my house. I'm sure he 
you know, he doesn't mind Eleazar, but he's like, this guy's going to inherit everything I got because you haven't done what you said you were going to do way back. And Abram says, behold, you've given me no offspring, verse 3, 15, and, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, so the Lord hears him, okay? Listen, you need to, you need to have permission to be honest with God about your struggles. He can handle them. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. That's lamenting. That's crying out. How long, O Lord? Where are you? Okay? The Lord's not scared. There's, there's, a, there's a space to be honest with the Lord about your struggles. And the Lord answers him. In the midst of that very raw answer from Abram, the Lord speaks and says, This man shall not be your heir. In verse 4, your very own son shall be your heir. And I, I don't know if you can enter into that story and feel the tension that would be like, like I can imagine that at this point, the very mention of a son would likely bring Abram and Sarai to tears. If you've been there, if you've had dreams not come true and hopes crushed, that the very mention of something can, can bring you to tears. And so he says, your son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and he says, hey, Abram, look toward heaven and go and count the stars. Imagine that. And he says, hey, see all those stars? That's how your offspring is going to be. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. So was Abraham a righteous man? No. We've already seen in just a brief walk through the story. No, he was, he was a sinful man. But we see that through believing the Lord, it's counted to him as righteousness. We see that, that he receives grace and mercy because he trusts the Lord with faith. It's, it's no different for you and I. Right? We are broken people. We just have more clarity on the promise. We have more clarity on how it's going to come true, and that's in Jesus. We'll see that in just a moment. He goes on to say, I am the Lord who brought the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But, it, but he said, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he says, and then he tells him, okay, bring me a heifer, and a goat, and a ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. <laughs> I gotta imagine Abram's like, I mean, cool, but I mean, I just ask, how am I gonna know? <laughs> He's like, you just gave me like a grocery list of animals. Is that, are you sure? Like, are you just hungry? Like, what? <laughs> we gotta eat first, Lord? Like, what, what's the plan here, right? But the Lord is setting up this covenant. In this moment, he tells him to go get these things. And, and so this, this scene is set up. If you read on down through there, this, this scene is set up where um, the, the, this, this covenant, right, this, this familiar process in the Old Testament where two parties would come together, and as they're making agreement, they would often um, slice an animal in half, lit, like literally butcher that animal, lay parts on each side. And, and as they say, hey, listen, if I, if I uh, fail to uphold my part of the bargain, my part of the deal, then may what has happened to this animal happen to me, right? So they would, they would set up these covenant processes, and this is what the Lord tells him to do, okay? So Abram goes, how am I going to know? How am I going to know? And the Lord says, go get this stuff. Go get, go get these animals. Verse 12. Um, it, <clears throat> verse 12 says, and as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that will, they will serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Can you, listen, you gotta set in that for just a minute. This is the Lord saying, I know the slavery in Egypt is gonna happen. 
In fact, I'm going to will it. Listen, some of y'all are in seasons you cannot understand. And you're struggling. And it's, right, and it's understandable why you're struggling. And sometimes, if I'm being honest, it's hard for me to know that the goodness of God is still true in the midst of seasons where I, I see darkness and loss and letdown. The Lord in this moment is letting Abraham know, hey, I've got the big picture in view. I've got a plan. You're going to go through this season of darkness. But it's, 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 it's intentional. So, so he's giving him assurance of this, him and the generations to follow. He's giving them assurance by telling them what's going to happen. The books of prophecy uh, that we have in the Bible, the revelation, all of those things, people want to get caught up in the details and wonder when and how. All of it, the, the point is that God knows things are going to be crazy in the, in the meantime. That doesn't mean he's not coming. In fact, it means he called it. He knows it'll be chaos. And we should be patient, we should wait, and we should trust, and we should worship in the midst of it. And so here he gives him this piece of information. Verse 15, he says, As for you, you shall go to your fathers and shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here to this land that he's promised in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God's saying, I'm doing something here. But then listen, listen to verse 17. Um, Dr. R.C. Sproul um, said that this was his, like, if you know Sproul, he, who's just a character that... Um, I love him. His theology is amazing and helpful. And some of the books we have written out there to give away are, are from him. Um, and he, a lot of people started, like kids would want him to, like students in seminary would want him to sign their books and stuff. And, um, and they'd always like, hey, what's your life verse? And he's like, I don't, I don't know what that is. And they're like, well, you know, it's your favorite verse. And he, and he started writing this. He started writing 15, Genesis 15, 17. And, and here's what it says. It's an interesting life verse. But he says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, or like a stove, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, that's a weird life verse, isn't it? What does that mean? Listen, the, the way these covenants would be sealed is that, as I said, they would lay out those pieces of animal and the two parties would walk in between them and, and they, they were making a very clear commitment and covenant together. If I don't uphold my word, what happens to these animals should happen to me, right? And so the two parties would walk through together. It's interesting how the Lord sets this up, isn't it? Because he puts Abram in a deep sleep. He reveals this truth to him. And then this, this stove, this smoking fire pot, passes between the animals. Not with Abram. Abram's not there. He's not holding his hand. He's not, like, it's not dependent upon Abram. The Lord's saying, I'm going to do this. The Lord is promising, I will do this. It's an incredible scene. It's an incredible thing to be recorded here. And this is the Lord sealing his covenant promise with his own faithfulness. We're going to see at the end that all of these covenants are, are a, a, just a screaming testimony to the doctrine of grace alone. Because God is going to use the faithlessness of, he's going to work in the midst of the faithlessness of these people to prove his faithfulness over and over and over again. In this Christmas season, we need to, we need to be reminded of that, that he is a faithful God, that the, that the, um, the promised rest on him. And so, uh, so that's the, the covenant, the, the, this, this, this relationship, this partnership with God and Abram, this plan to, to make Abram into this grand family, this, this large family that, that will eventually lead to Abram being a blessing to all people. 
right? And that gets now transferred and translated out to generation after generation. And, and for, for years, people have been at, you know, wondering, okay, when is this going to happen? But so, so that's how God sets it up. I want to go right in, and, and uh, wrap this part up by looking at Genesis 17. As God continues to, uh, to add details, to fill in blanks around this covenant. In John seven, or Genesis 17, 7, the Lord says this. My between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. For here is the promise. Okay, so you wonder, okay, what does is, what is the promise of Abraham have to do with me today? Why do I care about this in this Christmas season? Why do I care about what God promised Abraham? Well, I want you to hear what God promised Abraham. I want you to hear the language right here around this. He says, I promise this to be God to you to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Listen, this is such a simple statement, but the more we reflect on it, the more that we grasp this, the more we realize, okay, nothing this world throws at us, not, nothing that we don't get or we do get in this world matters in the scope of this. That This is what we are longing for, is that God would be our God. John Piper wrote a whole book called God is the Gospel. Okay, too often we minimize down the, the, the offer of the gospel is, okay, you don't want to go to hell? You can go to heaven. You don't want to go to a bad place? Let me give you a ticket to a good place. And, and it, that's not wrong. The gospel's not less than that. But the real offer of the gospel is that we would get God. It, it, and if you don't believe me, read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's this incredible illustration where this man with all the resources that we could ever want to have Whatever you think you need next, right? Pay increase, new car, new house, new kids, new spouse, whatever. Solomon, he had it all. He literally, I don't like this wife, give me another one. <laughs> These kids stink, I'm gonna try some more, right? The book of Ecclesiastes is the most powerful, richest man in the world going, I'm gonna figure out what's good in this life. In there, in chapter three, he says, God set eternity, he put eternity in the heart of man. This longing, he put it in there. Okay, you need to know that. The longing you feel, it's not because something, it's not because you're different than other people. It's not that everybody else is happy and you're not. It's not that you're wrong. No, that longing in there is a longing for God. That you were made to be in eternal relationship with him. And nothing else will fill that. You can get some other stuff that'll numb it, Right? kind of pacify it for a moment. But guess what? The glitter always fades, doesn't it? Kids, spoiler alert, whatever you're waiting on this year, I'm not saying it's wrong. Enjoy. Enjoy that anticipation. Enjoy looking forward to those gifts. But guess what? It won't take but just a few weeks, and you'll be dissatisfied again, right? Parents, y'all know this. That's why we're not that excited about Christmas anymore, right? As far as the gifts go, it's like, yeah, it's cool. Like, we know, like, we, we, we've started to recognize this pattern, but our, our longings just get latched onto other things, like new jobs and new houses and things like that, right? That we can't put on a Christmas list. Nobody, you know. We know this. We know that it doesn't last long. And, and Solomon tells us, Ecclesiastes, that's why. Because God's put eternity in the heart of man, okay? So when God comes to Abram and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. And yes, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your nation, I'm going to make your name great. You're going to, you're, not only are you going to be a man who's, you know, no longer in ill repute with the world because you don't have a son, you're going to have, uh, you know, more kids and grandkids and, and, and generations to come after you that will outnumber the stars. Not only that, and I'll give you some land too, but not only that, 
the point the reason I'm going to do all that is because I'm going to be your God. And you'll be my people. And we see this played out even more in, in Exodus and um, in, in the Mosaic Covenant. It's even another layer onto that. But I want to look at Jeremiah 32 as I think he fleshes this out just a little bit more. And we should have it on the screen. Jeremiah 32, um, J- Jeremiah talks about what this covenant is uh, in, in greater detail. And he says, God says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. That is what the Lord wants for you. you. You need to know that. Some of you are coming in with all sorts of mixed up ideas about what God wants from you. And all you know is that the church has rules, right? If I go to church, that means I'll have to stop doing this, this, this. And I don't sure, I'm not sure I want to stop doing this and this and this. I don't know if I want to go to church. You need to know that when the Lord gives rules, they're secondary because what he's wanting is your good. And any rules that he gives, he's not trying to take from you. He's trying to lead you to life. You know this if you're a parent. When you give your kid rules, you're trying to, you want them to live and not die, right? I got two boys that seem real hell-bent on dying, <laughs> right? It's just, uh, I got a friend here visiting. He said that about his little boy. He's like, he just wants to die every day. That just seems to be his mission. So we just got to keep him from that, right? And we as parents, we have to put in rules so that they don't die to the best of our ability. And the Lord gives us laws and he gives us rules. He's trying to lead us to life, for our good, it says in Jeremiah. And he says, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Everlasting. Not just if you're good, not just if you can manage to not mess this up this time. No, no, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. This is the Lord's heart towards you, that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. And that's a good thing, right? Because all wisdom begins with fear in the Lord. Right, because fear drives us. Whatever we fear, if we fear ridicule, if we fear embarrassment from, from other people, that's going to drive our behavior, right? If you fear, you know, not having enough, not looking cool enough, not getting enough gifts for your kids, not, feeling, not meeting somebody else's expectations, that's going to drive your behavior, right? That's what, that's what drives you to swipe the credit card again when you know you shouldn't. That's what drives you to, you know, live this lifestyle when you know you shouldn't. When, when we have fear of man, when we have fear of these other concepts, it drives our behavior. And so the Lord said, I'm going to come and I'm going to put fear of me in their heart so that that will drive their behavior. I'll put the fear of me in their hearts and they may, that, that they may not turn from me and I will rejoice in doing them good. Some of you wonder that. And, and listen, it, I've had those seasons. Does the Lord, like, I've never been able to doubt that the Lord created me, that the Lord, is, like that there is a God and that he's behind this creation. It's too wonderfully vast and complex and beautiful for me to think that it just happened randomly. But in my darkest moments, I've, I've wondered, does he, give a, does he give a crap? What happens to me? Is he present? Is that just me? Too honest? Sorry. In my darkest moments, I've, I've wondered with that. But here this says, I will rejoice in doing my people good. Now, it's his definition of good. You've got to keep that in mind. Right? Sometimes we think we know what will be good for us, just like our kids think we know, they know what would be good for them, right? They think, you know, a fifth cookie or a cupcake or whatever, they think it could be good for them. And we know, no, it's going to end really badly, right? Not only is your belly going to hurt, your butt's going to hurt because I'm going to have to spank you because you won't listen, right? We know the Lord knows what's good for us. And he, and he delights in doing us good. He says, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. 
Lord says, I will bring them here in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. That's the promise from the Lord. So that is what is behind the Abrahamic covenant. That is what he promises to do with Abraham is to make a people where he is their God and they are his people and they have the longing in their heart satisfied by, by being identified. They don't have to make a name for themselves because God has made a name for them. They are his. He belong, they belong to him. Okay? There's beauty in that. There's an adoption story. We don't have to make a name for ourselves. He has brought us in. He claims us. We're not orphans anymore. We're not without identity. We're not, without, like, we're not left out to just try to define ourselves or get identity out of what we've accomplished. The Lord steps in and says, he is mine. She is mine. They are mine. So, that is the promise that God gives to Abraham. And then it goes all throughout, right? We see, we see that Moses is sent in later in the fourth generation to get his people out, right? Moses, go tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. Why? So we can go out and have this party in the land and, and, and cool? No, he says, go get them so that they can come on this mountain and worship me, right? All of this is, is heading that direction. And all throughout the scripture, all throughout the Old Testament is all moving toward the coming of this Messiah all the way up into this Christmas story when an archangel shows up to a young woman named Mary. To a young woman named Mary and he tells her insane news. You realize that, right? You realize what the angel says to Mary is insane. Hey Mary, you're going to have a kid. It's going to be God's kid. He's going to save the world. Mary's like, I've never known a man. Gabriel, the archangel, goes, yeah, but with, with God, nothing's impossible. I know you don't see it. I know there's no way forward. There's no explanation. But with God, there's, there, there, nothing's impossible. And Mary goes, okay, let, let my life, let my body glorify him. And she surrenders to that, and she launches into a song, a song of praise, the Magnificat. And if you know this from Luke chapter 1, in the end of it, as she's celebrating, as she's, as she's saying, my, the, she starts out, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon his humble estate of his servant. And from behold, it says, verse 48 of Luke chapter 1, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and his holy name and his mercy for those who fear him is from generation to generation. The angel says, yeah, yeah, I know, it, but with God all things are possible. And he says the Holy Spirit is going to come to you, and he's going to overshadow you, and you will be with child. And so Mary begins to celebrate. She's singing the song, and at the end of the song, she says this in Luke, 54, Luke 1, 54 and 55. He says, she says, he has helped his servant Israel. That's the people. Mary realizes that this visitation from this angel speaking this truth to her is the culmination of all God has been doing with his people, Israel. When she says he has helped his servant, Israel, she's talking about the, the millions of people that make up the nation of Israel and half through generations. He says, she says, He's helped her servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
Mary connects the dots. She goes, this is what God's been planning to do. This is the promise. When he come to Abraham, it wasn't just about making a Jewish nation. In that moment, yes, he's going to isolate this nation and bless them and be a witness through them to the rest of the world, that, 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 that he is what the rest of the world is longing for. But the, the, the intent was to never have an exclusive one nation. It was always to bless all of the nations. And Mary realizes in this moment, oh, that's what God is about to do through me. So the, fulfill, the, the promise is that he'll be our God and, and, and we will be his people and the fulfillment of it is in Jesus himself, that he is the coming one who puts all of this together. Matthew says, this Jesus who's come. He's the son of Abraham. That's a messianic implication and a title that the people would have recognized. Now, why is this good news for us? Why does this matter for us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant? That cool, Jordan. That's just a good theology lesson. I'm not sure what I do with it tomorrow, right? But here's the deal. If we let the noise fade away and we are still before our God, And he starts asking us about our desires. I had to spend some time with high school students this week. We looked at John 4. Jesus spent some time with this woman at the well. And then he cuts right to her desires. He's using this idea of thirst to get at this greater idea of her, her longing inside of her. And he cuts right to the core. He says, I know what you've been desiring. That's why you've been running to men. I know there's a longing within you. You're hoping they can answer. Jesus says, if you knew who was in front of you, you'd ask me for water and you'd never thirst again. So we said at the beginning, we don't have to pretend. But the reality is I know we we're actually really good at pretending, aren't we? There's desires in your heart that you've never told anybody. There's longings, there's questions, there's fears, there's longings that you don't actually think will ever be met. And this season, man, is so powerful at bringing all that to the surface, right? Family gatherings, gifts, all those things. And then, Dad, come social media. Everybody puts their best, you know, image out there for the rest of the people to see. Look at my family all put together and the nice dinner that we had and the candles are lit and the placemats are there. They've been screaming at each other for the last three hours, but they didn't, they didn't put that on Facebook for you, Right? We just got these curated images of ourselves, and, and, and that, that just pushes everybody into this, oh, man, my, I, there must be something wrong with me. Everybody else seems to be doing great. Everybody else is able to get what they want for their kids. Everybody else is able to, you know, have this life. Everybody's house, their house is able to look this way, right? Whatever. You have desires in you that, that, that you know nobody else has spoken, that you've never spoken them to. And in and, and this Christmas season, the Lord steps in, and he says, hey, I'm the son of Abraham. What was promised to Abraham to be a blessing to all people, that's, that's me, I'm here. I'm here. What you've been longing for, it's met here, right? When, when we get this, that, that he will be our God and, and we will be his people, John Piper says then all the, the allure of gifts and ads and, you know, it doesn't matter how well they're curated in the algorithms on Facebook. Isn't that fascinating? Which kind of helps with shopping. You're like, oh yeah, I do want that. Or, you know, I, 
You're right. I was looking for that. Right? Just put it all right there in front of you. But they will lose their power. And John Piper says, it'll be like all that, all that advertisement, all that covetousness will be like a peddler trying to sell pieces of the castle to children of the king. It'll have no power over us because we realize we have the treasure. The thing that we're longing for, the thing that the world is trying to get out of Christmas is Jesus. It's God with us. When we lean into that, when we settle into that, when we let that wash over us, it can calm our hearts and calm our souls and take the power away of the depression, the fear, the anxiety, and the pressure that this season in particular brings to us. Indeed, we are the children of Abraham. I want to close by looking at Galatians chapter 3. Paul connects these dots. Again, thread starts all the way back. In Genesis, it runs all throughout the scripture. Paul in the New Testament, writing to the Galatian church, who's struggling with all kinds of junk and all kinds of legalism, all kinds of theological confusion. He points them back, and he says, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Right? This has got people looking around, because the Galatian church is divided over who's Jew and Gentile, and do we need the Gentiles to become like the Jews and get circumcised, and are they on a JV team until they do? Do we need to keep them on that side of the room so we don't catch their filth until they can get, you know, ceremonially cleansed? There's all sorts of tension going on, and, and so Paul says this, you want to know who the sons of Abraham? Like, Paul is angry. If you read the book of Galatians, he's frustrated. There is, there is like a, a, a tone to his voice where people are trying to take the gospel and, and, and what Jesus has done and turn it into religious works, turn it into how do I get there? You need to do this and fill in this blank and follow this path. Paul has a tone about him. He says, you want to know who the sons of Abraham are? You want to know who the receivers of the promise are? Those of faith not those of the circumcision, right? Like, that's, that's not the point. That was all leading us to another place. It mattered, but right now it is about those of faith. And he says, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the what? The gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's the good news. It, it, Paul's saying that the gospel was preached all the way back there in Genesis 12. Long before they knew the name of Jesus and knew what was going to turn out, the gospel means good news, and it was preached all the way back there to Abraham, and it, and it says this, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul says, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, who is the man of faith. So how do we make that promise ours? How do we lean in and get that relationship with God that can settle all the chaos in our life? It's through faith. We saw it. We saw where, where God gives Abraham a promise and he believes it and it's counted to him as righteousness. I said it earlier. All of these covenants are, are a, a, a testimony to the doctrine of grace alone. How are we saved? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, not of our works. So if you're here wondering what it, what it takes to be a follower of Jesus, it's not about a list. It's not about try harder, do better, get rid of this, and then you can come. No, no. It is... Will you believe the promise of God? Romans 10, famous passage. says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and, that God and that he died and that God raised him from the dead, you confess it with your mouth. All of that implies a realization that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. If you do that, if you get there, you realize, man, I don't have any righteousness to stand before God, and it doesn't matter what I do from here to there. I will never get the righteousness that allows me to stand before God. When you get there and you realize, oh, I need a Savior, and then you declare, man, Jesus, I know you are that Savior. 
I believe that God sent you on Christmas, and I believe that you went to the cross on Good Friday, and I believe that you got up out of the grave on Easter Sunday, that you were resurrected. It says if you do that, you believe, you shall be saved. You shall inherit the promise. You become a children, a child of Abraham. You are brought into the family of God. You receive the blessing. It's good news, church. If you're here and you've never done that, man, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait. It doesn't matter what you've told people. It doesn't matter what pretend. Lay it all down and come to Jesus today. Won't you? He's the son of Abraham. He's the one who's promised to come. Let's pray. God, help us. We need it. We don't even understand the ways that we're lost. We don't even understand the ways that, that we have failed to place our faith and hope and trust in you. But we come as your people looking to you to be the active agent in this, that you will do this work, that, that you, that you, Jesus, passed between us and death on the cross, that you went there, that you were the fiery pot between Abram and yourself, that, that you did that for us, that you put yourself in the place where we should have been, where we are the ones who caused death, that we should have been the ones slaughtered like an animal on the altar. You passed there on our behalf. That you yourself were slaughtered, that you were, yourself was slain so that we may have life, so that you could establish your new covenant with us. That's what we celebrated in communion today, the new covenant. Blood was shed, bodies were split, but it wasn't our own because you came, Jesus. Thank you for that, and may we worship in response. Help us to worship in response. Help us to come get saved if we're not saved. Help us to come and just worship and renew our trust and renew our hope in you in this Christmas season. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.